have friends from in town, out of town, friends who haven't been with us for a while. It's just good. It's good to be together in the house of, well, the house of comedy <laughs> with God's people. How's that? <clears throat> um, we're continuing with our series. You can bring the slides up on the series, on our series on the Gospel of Mark. We're about done. We only have probably about four sermons left. I know I said that last week, but I had to recalculate. I'm sorry. There might be 40. You never know. <laughs> but um, this week I've entitled this uh, sermon in this series called, it's called A Cross of Mockery. So have you ever been mocked? Did someone or a group of people scoff, shame, or laugh at you? And how did that make you feel? Listen, just having somebody do the ha-ha thing on a post I make on Facebook drives me nuts. Can you imagine <clears throat> in person? You know, mockery has become a, a massive industry. Matter of fact, there's a show, it's got over 20 seasons, South Park, South Park, all they do is mock people. Both sides of the aisle, everyone, they make millions and millions of dollars a year just being really good at mockery. And people extol them. They're really good at it, too. I mean, they've been mocked. I've, people that I represent have been mocked on South Park, and I hated it. But when they mock other people that don't wear I, I thought it was funny, <clears throat> you know? <clears throat> being mocked is, in fact, if you think about it, a distinctly human experience, Lions and monkeys don't mock each other. Dogs don't talk smack to one another, you know? It's just humans. But in reality, no human really wants to be mocked. It's something that, frankly, all of us would rather just avoid at all costs if we could. We mock people for their appearance, for their race, for their heritage, their faith. We mock them for personal moral failures, financial failure. We mock them for their politics. We mock them for their money or lack thereof. We even mock them, and this one is rightfully so, for their favorite football team if it's the wrong one. <laughs> you know, a few months ago, I was running an ad on Twitter for one of my books, and I discovered Twitter is mostly a big, massive portal for mocking strangers. <laughs> it's a cesspool of mockery. Complete ignorant strangers I've never met. I got so mad, I typed at least 25 scathing, mocking replies that I deleted before posting. <laughs> Every one of them. Never again will I run an ad on Twitter. <clears throat> you know, being mocked can be very traumatizing, especially for children. When a child is mocked, it can cause emotional scars. It can affect their emotional development. Even as adults, mocking hurts. It causes us to be sad. It causes depression, anger, leaving us often wanting revenge against those who have mocked us. <clears throat> but is it possible that there is a moment where mocking could be something different? Where being a target for mockery somehow supernaturally, miraculously brings us comfort. So we're going to look at today in our, in our passage from Mark chapter 15, 21 to 32. This is Jesus after he's being led to Golgotha to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine, Jesus. They offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments. Uh, it's not clicking forward. You can fix that for me. Put the mouse over there. <clears throat> yeah. 
divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. <clears throat> and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided or mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, Something's going on with this. Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, one to another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see it and then we'll believe. Those who were crucified with him, the, the other people, they also mocked him. A lot of mocking going on here. I want you to look at the historical aspect of this. I want to talk about the crucifixion and mockery at the cross. There is a massive shame associated with crucifixion. <clears throat> to this point, 30,000 people just in Judea alone have been crucified by the Romans since they took over the region. Crucifixion was meant to be not just a physical deterrent, but a shaming deterrent away from people trying to incite insurrection against the empire. It was a frightening way to die. It was slow. It was painful. But crucifixion also came with immense shame. You see, we mostly, we mostly like to focus on the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. But ironically, if you think about it, most of that information we have about the suffering comes from external sources. The scripture really doesn't focus too much on the specific details of his suffering. But ironically, scripture does focus a lot on the mockery that Jesus suffered. Now, a high-profile crucifixion was the most embarrassing way to end your life and anyone related or associated with you. When that would happen, it would mean that all the things you thought about this person, all the things you thought were good, no, this is your last memory, the shame and the mockery of a crucifixion. So at this point, with the miracles and the teaching, all the confrontation of the Sanhedrin, Palm Sunday, all that stuff, right? Jesus is about as high profile a crucifixion as it gets. <clears throat> this crucifixion has become a total spectacle. <clears throat> a week earlier, right, everyone was celebrating Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and then six days later, everyone's celebrating and mocking him as he hangs on a cross. Crowds are gathered in the streets to watch as Jesus stumbles on through the road, list, uh, carrying his cross to Golgotha, his final place. They're jeering him, spitting on him, mocking him the whole way. Romans, Sanhedrin, ordinary citizens, all observing the infamous Jesus about to endure the ultimate shame of Roman crucifixion. <clears throat> it's 9 a.m. Just a few hours, Jesus has become a spectacle of mockery and ridicule for all to observe. <clears throat> Roman soldiers carrying out his crucifixion, they mock him, dividing up his clothes just as they would any other criminal. That was common, by the way. When you were crucified as a little side benefit, the soldiers in charge of the crucifixion would get your clothes and they could keep them for themselves. The crowd is yelling, crucify him earlier. And as they parade by him hanging on the cross, they're shaking their heads, mocking Jesus, destroy the temple, build it up in three days. You can't even save yourself from the Romans and you're going to destroy the temple, you fool. They forget the feedings and the healings and all that stuff. The Sanhedrin parade by these Jewish elites 
religious elites crinkling their noses. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Come on, Messiah, prove it. Come down off the cross. Then we'll believe that you're Messiah, King of Israel. Even the other criminals being crucified with Jesus mock him. If you're a Messiah, why don't you save yourself and us with you? Even the charge that the Roman soldiers write and put over his cross, which was a common thing, by the way. Whatever you were being crucified for, they'd put the charge over the cross so people would know why you were being crucified. And you know what they put over his cross? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Even that's a mockery. Being from Nazareth itself was very shameful. Like I said, it's like being from Bradenton. So it's just a joke. Being from Nazareth itself is shameful. The idea that a king would come from Nazareth, well, that's just sheer idiocy. This mockery, this whole sad saga is, in fact, if you'll allow me to describe it this way, it is humanity spiritually at its absolute lowest point. But then there's a man who is mocked with Jesus. Enter Simon from Cyrene, a fascinating story. He's identified by Mark as the father of Rufus and Alexander, and that is very significant. So his family is there from Passover. Understand what Cyrene is, Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is this region on the northern tip of Africa. It's got a very large Jewish community. Many of them would travel to Jerusalem every year for Passover. Come across the ocean on a ship, they're right there. And Mark names his sons... Alexander and Rufus, because Roman readers, and that's who the Gospel of Mark is written to, Roman Christians, Roman readers would know exactly who Simon was by associating him with Rufus and Alexander, who were, in fact, high-profile leaders in, later, the Roman church. It's fascinating. Acts 11, in fact, tells us that there was a very strong, after the crucifixion, there was this very strong Jewish Christian church there in Cyrene. My guess is that it started with Simon and his family when they returned after this incredible experience. So Simon is forced, right, to carry, forced by the Romans to carry the cross of Jesus because Jesus is too weak. He's walking too slowly. They've got a schedule. Suddenly, Simon is forced into the epicenter of this mockery. He's a first-hand witness to it. In fact, he's probably receiving some of it. He feels it too. And by sovereign grace, yes, by grace, <clears throat> Simon meets Jesus at his lowest moment in his mockery. Simon becomes a Christian, later a critical leader in the first century church. And then later, after a while, after he went back to Cyrene and that church started, we know that what happened was he left Cyrene with his family for Rome. And one of his sons later becomes a key leader in the church in Rome. Paul references Rufus and Simon's wife in the book of Romans. It's a miraculous development, right? How mockery, something that was supposed to be a deterrent, don't ever be like Jesus, inspires Simon to be everything he could to be just like Jesus. And he inspired Simon. Look what Paul says in Romans 6, 16, 13. It's amazing. Greet Rufus, that's the same guy. That's the son of Simon the Cyrene. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I love that. 
also his mother, that would be Simon's wife, who has been a mother to me as well. So you see, it's not just some random guy named Simon the Cyrene. It's somebody that God has said, you're going to endure the mockery along with Jesus, and that mockery, experiencing it and understanding it, will transform your values, and you will become a cornerstone of the first century church. Roman soldiers had no idea that as they pulled Simon off the side of the street to carry the cross, that they were going to plant a church in Cyrene. <laughs> they had no idea. And that mockery and shame that was supposed to deter Simon from coming a believer and a follower of Jesus, it did the opposite. It inspired him. Remember this for later on in the sermon. So let's look at the spiritual part of this. I want to talk about enduring mockery. I want you to understand, Jesus, there was a lot of things that was going on here besides Jesus being beaten and suffering physically. He's isolated. This is the word for mockery that the scripture uses. It's called blasphemio. It means to vilify, to revile, to speak of in evil ways, complete defamation. That's the word. It means that you take someone and you put on them such incredibly dark, twisted charges that no one wants to be around them, no one wants to be associated with them. The word describes the public scorn and shame that Jesus has been subjected to. The last thing any Jew wanted was the shame and mockery of a public naked crucifixion at the hands of Rome. Even worse is a very public crucifixion of a well-known per person, a catastrophic collapse, if you will, of a good reputation. This mockery and the shame of a crucifixion would spur a complete abandonment of this person from anyone and everyone that knew him, their closest friends. They would not watch the crucifixion. In matter of fact, in some cases, Romans banned the watching of a crucifixion by the family. Everyone's ashamed or fearful of even being near Jesus, except for one, Simon, who is forced to do it. Even the father. The father would have every motivation and right to rescue his beloved son, wipe out these ridiculously mocking, scornful people. He's certainly uh, able to do it. He's declared so in the past, and he's done it in the past. When people were participating in open blasphemy of him and his name, we see this in Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So this is pretty clear. God has said, when you mock me, you're going to die. But God doesn't even do that here. All these groups mock and taunt Jesus and even the Father has abandoned him, does nothing to stop it. Jesus is forsaken by everyone. He's completely isolated. But it was his choice. And I think what we miss in this, when we talk about Jesus, he chooses to endure all the shame and mockery of the crucifixion, the worst fate possible for him, by the way, even when Jesus is offered the customary wine mixed with myrrh, a lot of people don't understand what the wine mixed with myrrh was in that. You know what the Romans did that for? It was actually a little bit of mercy. The wine mixed was, with myrrh was supposed to act as a mild sedative and a pain reliever so that the person who is being crucified could somehow get through it until they die. It's for relief. 
Jesus even refuses that medicinal comfort. He maintains, by his choice, full consciousness. Experiencing all, not just the physical, but the emotional pain that is inflicted on him. He chooses, he chooses to feel every laceration. He embraces every syllable of mockery. He takes on every ounce of shame, every painful physical and emotional second of the experience on the cross. He wants full use of his capacities to suck it all in. And as flawed humans parade by in ignorance and arrogance, Jesus fully, willingly comprehends each second of suffering. This is a miraculous act of God in today's passage. Jesus fully choosing to endure mockery from sinners. I don't know what's going on here. There we go. I want to read this and talk a bit more about his motivation. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why didn't? The question becomes, why didn't God come down and kill all, these, kill all these sinners? Think about this. Because God was pleased at the mockery of his son for those very sinners doing the mocking. In this moment, this is what's miraculous. <clears throat> God's thirst for righteous punishment of blasphemers, that thirst for justice is dwarfed by his thirst to redeem the chosen among them, like, like Simon. Jesus desires salvation for a people from each group mocking him and jeering him and killing him. He desires that more than his righteous revenge from the Gentile Roman soldiers to the crowds to the Sanhedrins to the priests to the scribes. But Simon's is the best and most powerful example. So what about us? What are we supposed to do with all this emotional stuff, this shame, this mockery? This was the uh, social media campaign from this week. Anyone can appreciate Jesus, but only true worshipers of Jesus fully embrace the mockery he suffered on the cross. Now look, let's make no bones about it. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you should be expecting some mockery. Today, the world just can't understand our embracing of a suffering Jesus. The idea of the cross seems so silly so foolish. The secular world views our obsessive reflection on a crucifixion of a stranger we never met 2,000 years ago as wholly irrational. Even those who might embrace what I have called social justice Jesus wag their heads at our veneration of his cross. They like all his teachings, but this worship of the cross, well, that's just stupid. Just follow social justice Jesus and you'll be fine. You know, some even resent, catch this, they resent how we get so emotional about it. They, they resent the fact that it's so humbling and so powerful and so inspirational for us. Here's some examples of some mockery. There's some, some signs that are up in different parts of the country, different times of the year. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Doesn't that one tick you off when you see that, right? What about this one? 30 million Americans know myths when they see them. What do you see? They see Jesus and the devil and 
Santa Claus and all this stuff. See, this, this is the type of thing I'm talking about. Then there's another one. Just skip church. It's all fake news. Well, that's so clever and relevant, isn't it? <laughs> Blessed are you when others revile. That's the same word, by the way, blasphemia. <clears throat> Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Be, rejoice and be glad when you're mocked. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were born before you. You understand something. When the world does that, when they mock the cross of Jesus, it's not that they hate you personally or us. They don't even know us. They never met us. If they met us, I'm sure they would just adore us, right? We're wonderful people, some of you. But what they really mock is not us. What they mock is our love for the cross. We try to explain it to them, but they just sometimes don't get it. But even when they scoff, it doesn't deter or diminish our affection for the cross. We understand that without spiritual enlightenment and understanding and calling from the Spirit of God, nobody can really comprehend why the mockery of the cross is so precious. Yes, it bothers us when we see this, but the fact is when it happens, it also affirms to us that the Bible is real. Since Jesus himself predicted it, you will be mocked. What I say and what I preach will be mocked, and not just right after I'm gone for thousands of years to come. It affirms, in fact, this concept of total depravity of the world. But there's an opportunity we have as Christians, and I've called it embracing mockery. Look what Paul says in Philippians 3.10, <clears throat> that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in, the suffer in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings. See, something happens when the Spirit intervenes in our hearts. We come to embrace, and this is supernatural. It's not because you are smart or spiritually able to figure out. There's something happens that's supernatural that allows our hearts to embrace the mockery of Jesus. And faith, the gift of faith, equips us with this unflappable embracing of the cross, and it is, in fact, what makes Christianity unique. We embrace the suffering and the death of our Lord. Embracing and identifying with the mockery of the cross isn't, and let me see if I can explain this the right way, it isn't just what Christians should do. It's what real Christians will desire to do. Given a choice between no mockery and mockery for the cross, Christians will always, ultimately, because of the Spirit of God within us, choose. Now, I'll go ahead and still identify here. It's impossible for a person who's been called and saved by the Spirit of God, like Simon was, to not embrace the shame and mockery of the cross. Yes, we're sad that Jesus went through all of that pain, of course, but the last thing a child of God would ever want is for him not to have gone through it. Does that make sense? We hate the fact that he had to be mocked, but we also know that for our sake he had to be mocked. 
I'll tell you, the last thing Simon the Cyrene should have done, rationally speaking, was devote his life to serving Jesus. But through the mockery of the cross, nobody preached. He just saw the mockery. He did. That day, he was a forced, involuntary association with the mockery of Jesus. And ironically, that ended up being the best day of Simon's life. The best. Now, this is crucial, church family. This is crucial. The fellowship of his sufferings and our desire to want them and to want to associate with his sufferings, it is a critical test as to what kind of a relationship you actually have with Jesus. Understanding and embracing this concept of mockery of the cross is, in fact, the secret sauce for an all-in ability to follow Jesus without deterrence. Because this, this mockery is what inspires us. Let me explain. Look what Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2 says. It's not clicking forward again. Something's going on with that back there, guys. So I'll just read it. <clears throat> there we go. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame or mockery, same word, let us also run the race with endurance set before us. See, while the world sees adoration of the crucifixion as foolish and illogical to followers of Jesus, this whole drama is inspirational. What should have been a deterrent to following Jesus inspired Simon to become the foundation in a church in Rome. The very government that's trying to deter people from following Jesus, that deterrence becomes the inspiration for a whole full-blown church. That's why Simon's story is so crucial in this passage today. It teaches us what a life that embraces the cross, listen carefully, Simon's example teaches you actually what a life that embraces the cross should look like. Reckless sacrifice. Today, true followers of Jesus will also be inspired by the mockery of the cross because the mockery of the cross is the birthplace and the inspiration for our supernatural dedication that the world cannot understand. Why are you sacrificing so much for this Jesus? Why? Because once we supernaturally embrace the mockery of Jesus, we will, by that mockery, knowing what Jesus experienced, we will be inspired to gratitude. We'll be inspired to humility. We'll be inspired to reckless transparency. The mockery of the cross will inspire us to new hope. It inspires us to a place where new purpose for living springs forth. And we finally learn what it means to actually live a full life. We draw purpose in hope from our Lord who willingly endured the mockery and shame so that we could be healed, the mockery and shame that we deserved. That mockery inspires commitment and dedication to his church. 
just as it did to inspire Simon, who abandoned his complete prior life to serve this new thing called the church. He lifted up everything, his family, and moved to Rome, for goodness sakes. You would think a Jew in Cyrene would want to move to Jerusalem. No. He wanted to go to the seat of power and be a part of the spread of the gospel there. That's how you know you embrace the mockery of the cross. Because it will manifest, to some degree, a sacrifice for the kingdom. If there's not much sacrifice in the kingdom for you, you probably just admire Jesus. You don't really worship him. You don't really respect the mockery of the cross. You're not there yet. But it's that mockery that inspires us to say, well, if you could do this for me, I'll do anything for you. Do you struggle with being inspired to relentlessly follow your Lord Jesus? Do you struggle to serve him in a way that the world would look at and say, well, that's stupid. That kind of fellowship is irrational. It's too expensive. It's, it's too, I don't know, it's too extreme. Well, maybe it's because you haven't experienced what Simon did, which was a fully public association with the shameful parts of the cross. Perhaps you're still too comfortable watching the mockery from the sides of the street rather than being pulled in and being a target for it yourself. Heavenly Father, we are so good at being comfortable in our faith, in our following of you. We're very good at managing the exposure to mockery in the world. But we don't want to be. We want to be so all in, like Simon was, that once we embrace and identify with the mockery that you experience on the cross, it inspires us to new levels of dedication, new levels of commitment, new levels of humility and transparency. Lord, we pray that you would give us a new connection, a new understanding of what it means to enjoy the fellowship of your sufferings. We are tired as a church of being comfortable in our following. We don't want to be comfortable anymore. We want to be inspirational. And we know that only happens through sacrifice. And we know the sacrifice doesn't happen unless we understand what you sacrificed for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. We really do. We're so thankful that what God is doing in your life and God's doing in our church. We pray that you have a great week this week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.